There are many beautiful psalms. I believe Psalm chapter 8 is, is one of the most beautiful for a number of reasons. But I love so many of the psalms. I'm sure you've grown to love, it, uh, love the psalms as well for any number of reasons. There can be sadness in your life and a psalm can uh, make a difference for you as you work your way through it. There can be joy and praise in your life and a psalm uh, can be a reminder of whatever the joy and praise is. And there are many different, uh, many different kinds of psalms, <clears throat> but we're going to focus on Psalm chapter 8 this morning, just those nine verses, and this is a, a psalm of David, and we're going to take a look at not only the beauty of the poetry and the descriptiveness that we find in this psalm, and I believe um, that David was an incredible writer, not just, not just because he is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I guess you could say that Everyone under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit must have been incredible uh, because they were sharing truth. But David had tremendous gifts to describe uh, some things about the Lord and to share his heart um, in ways that are very, very precious. And uh, I can just remember so many times when um, I took time to dig into the Psalms sometimes through some of the more difficult or painful times in my life. And I just remember uh, God using the Psalms in incredible ways, sometimes reading the same chapter or a few verses over and over again in the midst of a pretty difficult time. So we're going to share some things from Psalm chapter 8 today, um, this, this Psalm of David, and I hope that um, you'll be encouraged by, by the word. Uh, life is filled with what I would call both the indispensable and the peripheral. The peripheral things, of course, are the things that aren't quite as important. Incredibly, in the world that we live in, peripheral things seem to take on incredible dimensions and become far more important. And so we often, I think, switch peripheral things for indispensable things and refer to them uh, just the opposite of the way that God would want us to. There are a lot of things we call indispensable as well that I think uh, would be far from the truth. And I know that I am in some sense preaching to the choir when I say to a gang gathered uh, together on a Sunday morning uh, that the truth that we find in the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation, all of it is indispensable. I hope you don't just believe that as some, you know, ge generic, wonderful idea. Um, I hope that you are digging into the Word. I hope that you're reading it methodically. Can I share with you just an encouragement? It's not meant to make you uh, feel bad, but if you've been saved for any length of time, your eyes should have passed over every single word in this book. Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. In fact, I think over our lifetime, God giving us uh, the time to accomplish this, we ought to be reading through the Word over and over and over again. Why do I say that to a group of believers gathered together? Because there are a large number of Christians who have never read all the way through the Word. Can I tell you that I think that's sad? Now, if you've only been saved for 48 hours, don't feel bad. <laughs> Because it's going to take a little bit longer to work your way through that. 
But if you've had a chance to ever say to someone that you were trying to witness to or share what God was doing in your life, and if you've ever had a chance to share, you've probably said, I believe what God has, has said in his word. And if you haven't even read it, how do you know? You've got to be taking somebody's word for it. So we are challenged to be constant in the word and working our way through it. And so I hope that you see the Bible as indispensable. I hope if you've been a believer for any length of time and you have never read through the word that you will say 2016, I'm going to do that. There are plenty of plans out there. Honestly, if you go back enough decades, um, you were supposed to read through the Word, but nobody uh, showed you exactly how many chapters you needed to read. And now there's, you know, probably hundreds of ways in which you can accomplish that. So there's really no excuse for us organizationally not to be able to work through that. But let me remind you of something. It's less organization and more spiritual battle if you don't read through the Word, if we don't spend time in prayer. We have battles that keep us from those kinds of things. And if we would only recognize how the enemy utilizes those things to keep us from being strong, to keep us from being encouraged, to keep us from accomplishing kingdom things in the lives of other people, we would probably be more dedicated to our prayers and to the word of God because we would recognize Satan's the one who doesn't want this to take place. And so I'm challenging you to read through the Word, but Psalm chapter 8 is just one of hundreds and hundreds of chapters that we can find some really indispensable things. Now, I took a little bit of time to um, look at some things that are considered indispensable in our day and age. Um, This is actually probably not a great illustration to start with, but John Maxwell, I've read a number of his books, maybe some of you had, uh, have read them as well. He's he's great on leadership things, both business as well as spiritual uh, connections, but he has a, a book called 21 Indispensable Qualities of a Leader. And since he writes so much on on leadership, I've wondered if the other books are probably not all that valuable because these are the 21 indispensable ones. But he's got lots of books out there, and a lot of his stuff seems to be indispensable. But I won't argue the point with John Maxwell because I can highly recommend um, some of what um, he he shares. Um, There are parenting Um, books out there that are considered to be the indispensable ones. Some of them that don't even give a moment of time to the truth of God's word. I think that's kind of sad. There's certainly not indispensable information out there on how to raise a family or uh, to raise our children if if the word of God has nothing to do with it. But there are those who are willing to say this is indispensable. One of the books was called Angels um, and Urchins, and I suspect that if you followed uh, what they had to say without considering God's word, you might end up with a few more urchins than you do angels, but that's just a guess on my part. A Russian newspaper had a title from a few years back, Russia, indispensable for the reestablishment of parity between Eastern and Western civilizations. Wow. I mean, I probably wouldn't agree with most of what the Russian newspapers might share in any particular territory, but how do you reestablish something when it never existed in the first place? That would be my question. There was an indispensable guide focused, I think, on encouraging young girls in their self-esteem 
200 ways to raise a girl's self-esteem, and all of these were indispensable. I think when you get to 200 indispensable things, all of us probably just give up and say, okay, at number 17, I was all done uh, being able to make any kind of application. But in addition to that, as if 200 wasn't enough, the book also included 200 ways to raise a boy's emotional intelligence. And I thought, well, there's a waste of time. They even had a formula that was included so that you would kind of know how to detect what, what the emotional IQ was. And basically, my wife would respond to that and say, why would I need a formula for something that's not even double digits? <laughs> so as you can imagine, I don't see that as a particularly indispensable as well. Then there was uh, Greenfield's neuropathology. This was the indispensable, now listen to this. This was the indispensable seventh edition. This is hundreds and hundreds of pages. A price of $637, but I was the Christian book distributor and Amazon member, so I was able to get it for probably $537, and there's a deal. Which, by the way, if you, give, if you sell it back to them later on, you get like 38 bucks. Have you ever noticed how they do that? <laughs> Pay $90 for this book and then we'll give you $450 when you're done with it. <laughs> Can I just, you know, hand it over to a friend? But the thing that's interesting about this is an indispensable seventh edition implies that edition number one, which has been dispensed of, <laughs> two, three, four, five, six, were all dispensable, but not the seventh edition. I just wonder who the people are who paid for that seventh book. I'd like to meet them, you know. They either have loads of money or they are really, um, you know, not all there when it comes to economics. My conclusion, and you could, you could take a look at a lot of different places. I've kind of focused on books because titles give us at least some idea of what people are suggesting is inside of them. But my conclusion was this. Most of what people say is indispensable is not. But if we find things in the Word of God that are indispensable, and I would suggest to you that there's nothing in there that's not indispensable, then we need to pay attention to it. And I want to share with you just three things that I find in Psalm chapter 8 that are indispensables for us, and I believe it's a great encouragement for a first Sunday of a new year. I, I hope that you've spent the last days or a few weeks, even in the midst of the craziness, because it can get kind of crazy, to evaluate some things at the spiritual level. What was 2015 like? Taking some time to do a little bit of digging. Where was I successful and where did I miss the mark? It's not wrong for us to do that. It is, in fact, a good thing for us to do. And as you work through that, I hope that you'll draw conclusions. A little more prayer, a little more quality of prayer, a little more Bible reading, a little more meditation on the word beyond the reading itself that you'll make some decisions that would allow you to find a few more things that God says are indispensable. So I'm going to share with you three indispensable things, but I want to walk with you through the verses that are here. It's not a long chapter, and so I want to make sure that we have kind of an understanding of some of the words and the phrases that are here in this a beautiful chapter as we work our way through it. And I would say to you that if you're here this morning as a skeptic, 
as an unbeliever, maybe church is not a normal place for you to be. Maybe you're wrestling with what you do or don't believe about God or about Jesus or about truth in any number of ways. The first of the tasks or essentials that I'm going to mention later on in the message could be a tremendous value for your life. In fact, the first one I mention could totally absolutely transform your life. And I'm not making a promise that I have to keep, thank the Lord, because I would not be able to do that. But it's a promise that God makes, and he is able to keep his promises. And there's an awful lot of stuff out there touting transformation for us, whether it's in our thinking or whether it's in our bodies or whether it's in our finances. There are all kinds of individuals out there who are saying, we can help you to be transformed. And maybe some of them have some value there. But when God says, I can transform you, he not only means it, but he can accomplish it. And there are people sitting right in this room who are living examples of the transformation of God in their lives. That encourages me to know that that's true. If you are a floundering believer, the tasks that I share with you will not necessarily be ones that you've never heard before, but reestablishing these essential things, these indispensable things, could allow you to reorder your life, could allow you to multiply your productivity, could allow you to begin to think differently about whatever it is that may be going on in your life that you've been struggling or wrestling with, and allow some things uh, to transform in, in your life. So I would like for you to, to listen if you happen to be a floundering believer as well. And if you're someone who is focused on serving God right now, and you've started off this new year saying, you know, 2015 really wasn't horrible. I have a few areas that I may need to improve, but I, and I, but I plan to continue this idea of serving the Lord. There will be some refreshment in these three ideas that will allow you to continue to move on ahead serving the Lord. So let's take a little bit of time to read through Psalm chapter 8, and then I'll share uh, some thoughts about some of the verses and phrases there. Psalm chapter 8, starting in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Oh, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful psalm. David is the writer. The fellow who wrote this particular psalm and 72 others is, that we know of was a shepherd and an obedient son. You could go back to 1 Samuel 16 and be reminded of some of the stories there about the young David and how much he loved the Lord. He was a bear killer, 1 Samuel 16 and 17. Talk about some of the things that happened while he was doing his job uh, watching over the sheep. 
1 Samuel chapter 16 also talks about the fact that he was a harpist. So David had some musical talent as it relates to instrumentation. And if you know anything about the Old Testament Psalms, they are songs and not just poetry. So many of these were sung. 1 Samuel 17 allows us to see some of the transformation that takes place in David's life, even while he's still a young man, as he heads out to deliver some stuff to his brothers because his dad has asked him to do so. And he finds that the children of Israel at that point are in a really difficult situation with some strong military powers declaring that they were going to destroy Israel and there wasn't anybody to be the hero. David became the military hero, not because he was particularly strong or particularly big and not because he was particularly experienced, at least not in the military sense. He was experienced maybe watching over sheep and taking care of lions and bears. And I would say that's pretty good experience. But he was a military hero, and God allowed his reputation to be elevated as a result of the fact that he didn't allow fear to take over, even though the adults around him were fearful and anxious and showed no evidence that they were trusting in the power of God. David was an encouraging friend. You jump to 1 Samuel chapter 20, and you see one of the great friendships spoken of in the Old Testament between Jonathan and David. I would challenge you, whether you're a man or a woman or a teen or a young person today, we need encouraging friends. And I am not talking about the people who say, do whatever you want and I'll support you. I'm talking about encouraging friends in the David and Jonathan sense. They stirred one another to serve God better. They shared their love for the Lord and their love and care for one another. There was an intimacy in this relationship that was appropriate and encouraging, and we all need that at some level. David was also a seeker of God's will. You look at 2 Samuel chapter 5, and 1 and 2 Samuel and some other passages in Scripture will give you a little of the history that I'm sharing in regards to the writer of Psalm chapter 8. But in 2 Samuel chapter 5, it says that David inquired of the Lord. He asked the Lord. You'll find that nine different times in 1 and 2 Samuel and in Chronicles, we find this phrase or something similar that David inquired of God. That is prayer in some sense of the word, but it's also the good counsel that David sought. I'm not sure where to go. I'm not sure what to do. I am under the stress and the pressure of life. God, help me, please. It's a good place for us to be. He was interested in God's opinion. Can I ask you the question? Are you interested in God's opinion? Do you care what God thinks about the choices you make regarding your time, your family, your leadership, your priorities? We ought to be interested in the opinion of God, even if we don't have as much uh, interest in the opinions of people who sometimes give us their opinions whether we've asked for them or not. So David writes numerous different psalms. I love reading through not just the psalms of David, but the ones of Asaph and other of the musicians that you find um, in the psalms. You find psalms of incredible praise 
Psalm chapter 8 happens to be the first of the praise psalms that we find in the 150 that are there in Scripture. You'll find lots of other praise psalms. They're beautiful. But this is the first one. Something interesting also about the context here. If you read Psalm 6 and you read Psalm 7 and you read Psalm 8, all three of them appear to be psalms that were written in the darkness of night. You say, well, what difference does that make? Well, I guess you could say that if there was absolutely no light, it would be hard to write in the first place. But what I'm really talking about is that for whatever reason, others seemed to be asleep and David wasn't sleeping. And in the darkness, rather than just saying, I've got to work tomorrow, I've got to watch the kids tomorrow, and I can't sleep. It is frustrating for us, and I get that, and I am not rebuking you if you felt that, because I've lost some nights of sleep, and it's truly frustrating when you don't feel like you're going to have the energy to do whatever it is that you need to do. But David was a very productive non-sleeper. So can I encourage you during those times... When for whatever reasons, I mean, probably sometimes it's just what goes into our body. It's like the caffeine came too late in the day. And I mean, when when I was young, maybe some of you are the same way. I could have as much caffeine as I wanted. I could drink it right up until bedtime and fall asleep and sleep for hours. It meant nothing to me. So it actually was a rude awakening when the same thing I'd been doing for years that didn't make any difference began to make a difference because I didn't know what to look for. And I found myself sleepless at times, and it took months of time to say, well, maybe caffeine affects me now. And at some point, it was like, okay, I'm drawing a line here as it relates to that. And caffeine's not the only thing that can do it. Sometimes medicines that you take can stir you when you don't need to be stirred. There are times when other things that you eat or drink, depending on how your body reacts to everything from monosodium glutamate to Sudafed or whatever, these excitotoxins can keep you awake. It won't affect all of you. So some of you take that stuff and you're saying it doesn't cause any problem for me. But some of you have learned when I take that stuff, I'm wired for sound. So the reason I'm saying that in regards to Psalm 6, 7, and 8 is this. We see from Psalm chapter 3 up through Psalm 7 that there were a number of prayers and laments. Psalm 6 and 7 were written in the dark, but they were psalms where trouble existed and David was saying, I need your help. You're going to sometimes not be able to sleep or have slept for the first couple of hours and you wake up, your eyes are, your, your eyes are bright and bushy-tailed. You can't go back to sleep. Be productive in those times. Take some time to pray. Take some time to soak into the Word. Because these can be very precious times with us and the Lord. And David seemed to understand that and understand it very, very well. So two night psalms seem to be times when he's concerned. Psalm chapter 8, there's no evidence that he woke up incredibly concerned. Maybe he was. Maybe he just decided to stay up late instead of going to sleep and spend some time with the Lord. Have you ever done that? I think I'm just going to lose a little sleep tonight and spend a little bit more time with Jesus. It'd probably be good for us. And so this night psalm is recorded in darkness. And because of the sleepless nights that I've had at times over the years, that stands out to me when I'm working my way um, through the passages here. Now, 
I want to share these indispensable things with you, and we'll work through those very rapidly, but let's talk about the verses that we just read and kind of work our way through. So if it's been a while since you've been through Psalm 8, walk through this with me. Verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Interestingly, as it relates to English uh, versions of Hebrew words, the first phrase there, O Lord, our Lord, which I think is kind of pretty in the English, we don't really get the full sense of what's being said here. The psalmist is actually saying Yahweh or Jehovah and Adonai. Two different words, both that can be translated Lord, and both with slightly different meanings that I believe were very important and heartfelt as it relates to David at this point in time. Now keep in mind, Hebrew was David's native tongue. And so for him to call God by different names, he understood the detail of what all of that meant. But Jehovah or Yahweh was the eternal one. It, it kind of represents this bigness of God that we can't even get our heads around. Adonai is the sovereign one. So we see evidence of the power of God in this word Adonai, but it also speaks to the personalness of God. David understood that even though God was creator and he was the most powerful being in the universe, David understood, I'm allowed to connect to this God. Man, what a blessing that is. And implied in Adonai also are the many attributes of God. We won't talk about all the different ones, but you've looked at many different attributes of God, whether we're talking about his love or his holiness or his hatred for sin and things of that nature. Then he uses the phrase, how majestic is your name? The name there is not just Lord, our Lord, although I believe he's kind of referring to that, but he's talking about the fact that God is a God of great reputation. God is a God of renown. Majestic, I do think of mountains, snow-capped, when it comes to majestic ideas. God's name is majestic. Have you ever thought about it that way? Yahweh, Adonai, your name is majestic. Your reputation is one of great renown. And then he says, God, you're the one who set your glory above the heavens. Now, I think of this in very practical ways locationally, because no matter where you are on earth, if you believe in God, you can look up. And there is God. So I think in some measure, God says, I am everywhere, but I'm above you. But beyond that, I believe he's talking not just about location, but about superiority. Not in a bad sense. Superiority in the sense that God is beyond us. That can be kind of a scary thing, but it's a precious thing as well. You see, the God who is beyond me can accomplish the things that I could under no circumstances accomplish. The God who is beyond me is the one to whom I am allowed to go and say, God, I need you. I've had to pray over this past week on a number of occasions, 
God, I need you. And there's been some sense in my heart that not only does God hear, but he is capable of being there because God is majestic. He's huge. He is powerful. Look at verse 2. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. I love um, John MacArthur's reference to this particular uh, passage. He says, there's a look and a contrast by the psalmist at the infants and the infidels. I like that comparison. The infants and the infidels. Now, there are two words here, babes and infants. The term infants really means what you probably think of, that newborn little baby not able to do anything on its own, completely dependent. And maybe you don't see in that little child a tremendous amount of faith. But can I suggest to you that whenever that little child, who cannot even pronounce words yet, has a need, they are entirely committed to communicating that to the people who can provide the need. There's an, there's an evidence of faith in infancy that we probably don't really think of as faith so much, but they are entirely dependent. That's why it's so sad when there are individuals who do not care for their infants. But when you do, even though it probably gets you up in the middle of the night, on the night when you were sleeping well, there's something about being able to provide that is special for us as well. But what about this word, babes? It's not the same word in the original language. You see, babes has more to do with the little toddlers, the individuals who have not yet learned to fully communicate, but in some measure they are capable, as they learn to talk, of listing out praise to God. Did you ever hear a little two- or three-year-old pray when they're just learning how to talk? I love this. When my 31-year-old was three, here's a good example of what his prayers sounded like. Now, don't criticize him for his theological incapabilities at this age, please. Dear Jesus, thank you for the food. Amen. That was it. And we're heading into dinner. It was, you got there pretty fast when he was the one praying, so I didn't mind that. But it was really pretty cute. We would have, you know, you have people over and, you know, Johnny, do you want to pray? Dear Jesus, thank you for the food. Amen. What about before bed? Dear Jesus, help us to sleep and watch over everybody. Amen. You know. But there's something profound about babes lisping out praise. Isn't it incredible how God uses children, children and grandchildren sometimes to teach us? Why are you sad, Mommy? Jesus can take care of us. That's faith, isn't it? You say, oh, well, that's, that's not faith. They just don't know any better. That would be a worldly version of that. I am declaring to you, based on what Psalm 8 says, that is faith, and it's a kind of faith that God says you and I ought to pay more attention to. It ought to be more a part of our lives. The simplicity of that kind of faith is refreshing to God. It's one of the reasons why later on in the New Testament, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and forbid them not for of such is the kingdom of God. 
So there are little ones that are stronger in faith than the big people all around them. So verse 2 allows us to be reminded of that. Can I say something about truth and teaching children as well? There are words at times for those who teach spiritual truth to their children in the culture that we presently live that would suggest that we manipulate or in some way indoctrinate to teach children about God and Jesus. I want to, I want, I want to help eradicate any thought that that could possibly be true. First of all, indoctrination, by the sound of it, is a pretty negative thing, generally the way it's used. And I believe in some sense that when we teach truth to our children, we are not so much indoctrinating in that negative sense of the word. We are not manipulating them. But based on what God's word teaches, we are leading them in the direction of truth. That is the opposite of sheltering from truth. I believe truth appropriately exposes So for all the accusations of sheltering in Christian homes or in Christian churches, it is those who teach children or adults that there are no consequences for your choices who are sheltering them. And then when their lives fall apart and they can't figure out for the life of them why everything's a mess, it's because they weren't taught truth and they were sheltered from certain things that allow all of that to take place. Don't you ever feel like teaching your children is in any way manipulative? It's exactly what God has called us to do. And we need to follow through on that as a primary calling for us. And every opportunity we get, whether it's in your home because you have your own kids, or if you're empty nesters and you still get a chance to teach a Sunday school class, or to teach a small group, or whatever the situation is, continue to get truth out there. Truth is not manipulative. It's actually quite beneficial. Verse 3. When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist uses the phrase here, when I look at your heavens. The word look is not just in the darkness. He sits there probably as a king in a palace of sorts and looking out, although there are psalms that could have been written while he was a shepherd that came along later on and could have been sitting out on a hill at some point. But he is saying, I am taking time to scrutinize the incredible heavens, the beautiful stars. It's not just, I look and I see. It's, I'm meditating on some of the creative beauty of God. In some measure, when he says, when I look at your heavens, it's just like what happens. We consider it very beautiful. You know, New New Year's comes all around the world and everybody uses fireworks. And I kind of like fireworks. But they are man's artificial version of beauty. Think about it. God paints the sky, 
It, 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 was, it was God's Play-Doh that gave us the dirt and people and trees and all the different things that were formed by God. And he decided to allow the painting to have the sun and the moon and the stars. And they're not just right there all at the same distance. They're distances that go beyond our ability to even fathom it. A constant reminder of the incredibleness of God. Because the God who can create infinity as it relates to the stars and distance, is a God who's going to be able to take care of you as it relates to your food or your clothes or your concerns. It's great news. So David is focused on this, but then he talks about the work of God's fingers. I don't know if you've thought about the phrase much, but we only really find it about five or six times in the Scriptures. The work of the fingers of God as opposed to the work of the hand of God. Do you see any difference there? Well, there is a difference. Much of the time when we find the hand of God spoken of in any number of categories, it has to do with the incredible power of God. But when we see this phrase in Psalm 8, the work of your fingers, David is focusing on the intricacies, the artistic skills and abilities. See, David is an individual who pays attention to the details. I have thanked the Lord for my youngest son a number of times, just like you have surely thanked the Lord for your children for different reasons. Daniel was the one, when I was in the midst of incredibly busy church ministry, early up, late to bed, often not home for dinner, doing all kinds of things, and at times questioning, is this really the way life was intended to be? Because I'll admit I struggled at times with whether or not I could do family-wise what I felt like I needed to do, and so there were some battles there. But if, if Saturday came and there wasn't any work to do, there were times when I would find myself not in the driveway under my car changing the oil filter, which happened a few times, I hate being under cars because I always get stuff landing in my face. And so it never worked out all that well. And I'm not great at fixing them anyway. But I would find myself lying in the driveway with Daniel. He got there first, of course. I wouldn't have probably chosen to do it on my own. Dad, look at this stone. Okay, there are stones in the driveway so that we have something to drive on. I mean, I mean initially, I'm not, I'm not wildly open to this, but he would see a sparkle in a stone. God made that, Dad. He would draw my attention to something that in my busyness, I really wasn't taking a whole lot of time to pay attention to. And it allowed me to apply the brakes in a way that was absolutely appropriate. So I loved the fact that Dan paid attention. And I believe I pay more attention to some of the wonderful things of God because of one of the children that God gave us. So it was very, very precious. I was so busy getting there that I had stopped enjoying the trip. Anybody here like that? So busy getting there, I stopped enjoying the trip. Verse 4, what is man that you are mindful of him? A couple of different words here. They don't, again, mean identical things, but man is the one who's the created one. He is inferior to God in some sense of the word, but superior to some of the other creations of God. There is an implication in the word man that he is mortal, that there is a frailness, that there is a fragility that is a part of who we are. We know that that's certainly true. 
I mean, a long life for us might be 100 years. I mean, if people live to 100, if, if you're like 24 and somebody lives to 100, it's like, wow, they've been around forever, you know? When you're, when you're 50 going on 55, 55 going on 60, you're saying, I don't even think I'm going to make it to 100 because Twinkies and me have been too uh, affectionate over the years. Where does that leave me? you know, as it relates to this. But we kind of recognize our fragileness as time goes on, and we don't recognize it as much when we're young, unless we're going through incredible health things. But long life for a human could be a hundred years, and yet God made oak trees that have been around for a thousand years. I find that fascinating. And yet man is the pinnacle of the creation of God. And he's put us in charge of some of these things. Well, then David uses the phrase, son of man. Son of man takes it to a new level. Now, it's used messianically in a few other places in Scripture. And if you remember how Jesus referred to himself, he loved son of man as a reference to himself. One of the primary ways that Jesus referred to himself. Maybe not so much messianic in this particular case, but son of man is a little more of a distinguished phrase than man itself. It has to do with the uniqueness of the species and the fact that there is a closeness to divine that is different from some of the other creations of God. This is one of the reasons why it's good for us as believers to have a Bible theology about a lot of different things. Now, if you're somebody who who loves animals, don't misunderstand me when I say this, because I believe we ought to care for the beast. Old Testament talks about that. There are things that God declares as it relates to this. But when it comes to animal life and plant life and all kinds of other things, man is the pinnacle based on God establishing that. Psalm chapter 8 talks about it. It's mentioned other times in Scripture. Now, God has also said to man, going back to the uh, commands of Genesis chapter 2, that you're responsible for caring for the earth. So guess what? It's bad theology to think that we're allowed to destroy the place. We're not. So we have to be balanced, even though there can be wild and crazy people whose ideas about not destroying the place might run into territories that you would uh, wrestle with. But God's given us some mandates as it relates to that. So the word uh, man and son of man, very, very beautiful pictures there. Um, I think quite often man sees himself as powerful, Look at the fact that um, we have some things right now that are pressing back cancer in the medical world. And by the way, I'm excited about that. Cancer is a horrible disease, and, it, and it, it comes from so many different sources. It's been hard to track down. I hope that we do reach a place where we can resolve that. It would be a wonderful blessing. But all we do right now, at the best, is press it back for a little bit longer period of time. Sometimes we defeat it, and we defeat it in some ways today that we didn't even 25 years ago. Praise the Lord for the progress that's been made there, but it's interesting how man looks at his accomplishments. Look at what we've done in medicine. Look at what we've done in science. We can now put people on planes, and it will only take them 20 hours to fly most of the way around the world, you know? Everybody who's been on those 20-hour flights talks about it. Oh, man, is this ever, you know, going to be over? Now, it's great. I mean, we're talking about tons of metal and a bunch of people being up in the air. I'm still fascinated by the whole concept, even though I kind of understand uh, the science of it. 
But God's the one who says, I'm going to send Jesus back, and in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, people are going to be gone. It's not going to be hopping on a plane. Man, if you think Africa's far away, wait till you go to heaven. You know? God way beyond us on these things. So man thinks about his own technology and science and medicine. Look how much we're accomplishing. Look at what we're doing. I mean, think about it, folks. Look at what we're doing to bring peace to the world. That's exciting. God sees man quite frequently and appropriately so as pretentious because we are overawed by our own actions and somehow willing to live our lives as if the power of God and the creation of God has nothing to do with us. Oh, I don't even know whether that stuff exists. Incredible. The, the, uh, the, the amount of uh, boldness that is sinful coming from a man really should amaze you. So what is man that you're mindful of him? And if you jump back to Psalm chapter 2, there's a neat neat little verse that talks about the God in the heavens laughing in derision at these individuals who are so pretentious. I don't believe God's laughing to be mean-spirited there. I don't believe God is um, laughing because he doesn't love or doesn't care. I believe he's laughing in the same way that you would when somebody's six-inch-long, five-inch-high dog comes to keep you out of their yard. I think it's something similar. In other words, humans, who, whoever the most powerful human thinks they are, who, who shakes their fist in the face of God, he doesn't exist, I don't care about you. I, I always have these bizarre pictures. Forgive me for bringing them to you, and now you have to think about them. But, but I, I think of the guy who is the most powerful in the world, shaking his fist in God's face. And what is God here? We represent the lollipop kids. It's just no big deal when it comes to the powerful God. So he's not laughing in a mocking sense of the word. He's laughing because it's silly for people who were created to act like they weren't. Then verses 5 through 8. Interesting phrase here. I know it's in some ways a controversial one, but... You have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings. Some would say that's not a great translation. It says angels in some passages. Some would say that is not. You will find it um, in the Greek version of the Old Testament as angels. You'll find some references in the New Testament to this. But my point here is the original word is Elohim. And I mentioned that because in some measure... I don't think God is referencing man as being lower than angels. There are some things in Scripture that would seem to indicate differently, even though they are very different creatures. They do have a purpose. But I believe that what's being said here is that we are lower than God. But like that beautiful New Testament passage says, 
God in his grace is willing to allow you and I to be a partaker of the divine nature. Oh, man. That, that excites me. Why would God do that? He didn't have to. But he allows for that to take place. And so um, verses 5 through 8 there, in some measure, I think are speaking to the fact that man is held in high esteem by God, but lower um, than God himself. Verse 9, he closes the way he opened. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalmist is basically saying, in a nutshell, I see the powerful God. He created the cosmos. He made it all. He he decorated it beautifully. I also see the puny, the infidels who shake their fists, but that doesn't mean anything to God, but also the infants, also the babes who lisp out their praise to God. And then the psalmist closes by saying, I see power not only in the huge and strong sense, but I see power in the caring, in the appropriately condescending sense. God cares about us. So what are these three indispensable truths? I will not take a lot of time with them, but I wanted to work my way through the passage and then share them with you as the way we close. The first indispensable truth, I see, th- believe we find it focused in the first three verses of Psalm chapter 8. I'll not read them again. The psalmist is saying, you should know the God who created you. That's an obvious one, I think, for believers. So let me allude to what I said earlier in the, in the message. If you don't know Christ as Savior yet, if you do not have an understanding of God as your creator, it's time. 2016, it's time. Know that God is your creator. Know that Jesus is your savior. He can be your Lord. Why is that important? Because your whole eternity, your whole post-life, your whole after death is determined by what you do with Jesus. So knowing the God who created you is an important part of the puzzle for those who have not yet come into a relationship with Jesus. But what about those of us who have? If I've accepted Jesus, is there any sense in which I need to know the God who created you? Absolutely yes. Every year that goes by, it is possible for you and I to know the God who created us better. Make that one of your 2016 goals. Know him better. Wherever you are, if you knew him a little, continue the improvement. If you knew him a lot, Continue to know him better. God allows for those kinds of things to be matters of tremendous progress for our whole lives if we will allow that. So I believe we need to know the God who created us. And I'm reminded of what uh, John Render mentioned this morning. Pastor Keith mentioned it in the last couple of weeks. John 1, 1 and 14, Jesus was there at creation. He was the incarnated one, the in flesh one. He's the one to be worshipped and glorified. God's given him a name that's above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess. What about the second indispensable task? Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. Know who God created us to be. We see it evidenced here in Psalm chapter 8. We are supposed to be glorifiers, bringing praise to God. It is possible for us, though we are finite, 
to magnify God on behalf of others based on the kind of life that we live and the kind of testimony that we have. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6 talks about it. We are to be to the praise of his glorious grace with which he blessed us in the beloved. Precious verses that we find in Ephesians. So I come to conclusions like this as it relates to us being glorifiers of God and as it relates to Psalm chapter 8. He thinks of me. He thinks of us. So we know that we're on his radar. He cares for us so that we know he's attentive to the details. He elevates us. We don't deserve that. He elevates us so that we know that he has wonderful plans for us. So we're allowed to draw these conclusions. We are people of distinction because God said we can be. We are people of value because God said we can be. We are people of purpose because God said we can be. That should bring joy to our hearts and it should allow us to focus on bringing glory to God so that he in turn will be able to use us in greater and greater ways as time goes on. Here's the third one and I close. The third indispensable task, Psalm chapter 8, verses 6 through 9. Know what God created us to do. We need to know who God created us to be. That was number two. We need to know what God created us to do. The being is internal in some measure. It's spiritual in some measure. And it's pointing to God rather than pointing to us. But knowing what God created us to do really gets into the details. I mean, I wake up each day and I got to decide, is this going to be a day where I serve God or where I serve myself? Just two choices on the shelf. I heard it in Christian camp for years and years. Just two choices on the shelf, serving God or serving self. We make that decision every single day. What did God create us to do? There are some things in Scripture that are true for all of us. But there are pieces of what God has called you to do and what God has called me to do that will not look at all the same. Because he wants to use the uniqueness of you and the uniqueness of me to make a difference in the lives of more people. There are individuals sitting in this room, I think of it even as I speak to you now, who have said, I know God's calling me to do this. I know God's calling me to help here. I know God's calling me to make a difference here. I love hearing those testimonies. Don't lose the goals. Whatever it is that God's been laying on your heart, continue the process. There are people out there who are waiting for you to forge ahead on whatever it is that God's called you to, and they don't even know you're the one. But when you come along, they will look back on that and say, boy, God brought that woman or God brought that man or God brought that teen into my life. Praise the Lord. So there are some indispensable tasks that we find in this psalm. It's in the midst of the beauty and the uniqueness of Hebrew poetry, and I am challenging you to take some of the beauty of that poetry and allow it to encourage you in the beginning of this 2016 year where God wants to use the people of harvest to accomplish great things. Let's do that together. Lord, thank you so much. 
for the blessings of your word, for the truth of it, for the clarity of it. I, I would even say, Lord, I thank you that there's so much of it. We don't run out of opportunity to learn more about you because in these pages, in these 66 books, there's so much. We have not yet gotten to the place where we know you well enough. We have not gotten to the place where we are all that we ought to be. We have not gotten to the place where we've accomplished all the things you want us to do. So do a Holy Spirit work in the lives of this church family. And if there might be someone here who does not know Christ yet, allow us to have an opportunity to show them how they can know absolutely for sure that they are on their way to heaven. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.